Welcome to Building Sustainably, The Road to Net Zero, a podcast by RPS. Achieving net zero requires a transformational shift in the way we plan, design, and build. But as the 2050 target edges closer, significant challenges lie ahead. In this podcast series, we aim to tackle the key issues head on. We'll explore real life case studies and provide actionable advice on how to define, design, and manage net zero projects and programs. In this series, we focus on decarbonization challenge facing owners and operators of large property estates, a challenge compounded by aging infrastructure, limited funding, and competing pressures. Here to make the complex easy, I'm your host, Chris Lavery. Passionate about the need to deliver sustainable and healthy environments, Phil Marsden is no stranger to the decarbonisation challenge. Director of Programme Management at Muse Developments, Phil works with both landowners and the public sector to bring about sustainable regeneration and urban renewal through delivery of mixed-use commercial and residential schemes. With over 20 years in the construction industry, Phil has spent the last eight at Muse. He's currently in the midst of completing the Eden Office Building in Salford, one of the most sustainable office buildings in the UK. Designed to be net zero in operation, built in accordance with Passive House principles, targeting a NABAS UK 5.5 star rating and with Europe's biggest living wall. As commercial managers helping to deliver this exciting project, we've been able to experience firsthand the challenge and reward that comes with delivering a scheme with such ambitious sustainability targets. We're looking forward to exploring this with Phil as we delve into today's episode, as well as the opportunities that public-private partnerships present and the principal role they can play in meeting net zero targets across the public sector. Welcome, Phil. Many thanks for joining us. We're really looking forward to a good discussion today and listening to some of the fabulous experience you've got and some of the projects you've been involved with. I think we're in for a really interesting conversation. Morning, Chris. Looking forward to it. Yeah, great stuff. So I think if we can just jump straight in, really, what we're well aware of is that collaboration is very much at the heart of the Muse business model. You talk about bringing together the best of public and private sector to deliver transformational change and maximise social value. Could you really give us a, a bit of an insight as to what you think makes these partnerships so effective? Yeah, partnership is absolutely key to what we do. I mean, most of our, if not all of our projects are delivered in partnership, usually with local authorities, sometimes with landowners. We do have some strategic partnerships that Muse are also involved with, delivering some really long-term complex mixed-use developments. And it's absolutely essential to what we do. You know, we were a placemaker. We create places that benefit the communities in which we're working within. And we have a long-term view. And that's so incredibly important. We don't actually hold buildings. We sell all of our buildings. But because of the long-term nature of the developments that we're involved with, we have such a vested interest such and a massive responsibility, actually, in creating really good, really good places. That involves really good quality infrastructure and public realm, encouraging sustainable transport, but also good quality, sustainable buildings. And that's hard. That viability on projects is a massive challenge. That requires changing infrastructure from car-dominated to more sustainable transport requires changes in mindset within the public. There's challenges that come with that. And having strong partners alongside us who have that shared long-term vision that can invest in the right areas is crucial. We can't do it on our own. And our partners, local authority level, but also partners in our supply chain, the contractors and the consultants we work with, 
everyone's sharing that vision that we've got and that long-term view. And I think that's really important. The long-term view is absolutely crucial. We can't deliver the transformational change that we want to without working in partnership. No, I think that's, you know, what you explain there is it's about everybody, really. It's not just about yourselves. It's about how you bring everything together. So it's, and as you say, definitely for the long term. So I think for people listening, decarbonisation of the built environment is central to achieving the net zero carbon targets, given it's responsible for 25% of UK greenhouse gas emissions. So many of our audience are grappling with that at the moment. So how do you see the partnerships being able to play into that? Yeah, it's clearly really important. At Muse, we have our own sustainability strategy now, which doesn't just focus on carbon, but clearly reducing carbon is a is a key a key objective within that. It's really challenging. Perhaps come on to this later on, but we're sort of finding ways to get through the operational energy side, but still massive challenges over reducing embodied carbon to the levels that we need to. And I think if you look at, say, the strategic partnerships we're involved with, like English Cities Fund, which is a partnership we've got with Legal and General and Homes England, that partnership we've got there helps us because, again, go back to it, we've got that long-term view. The types of projects that we look at with that, that's Muse, but also with ECF, are long-term schemes. So we've got the ability to look at things over that sort of longer-term period. And again, the collaboration with local authorities to try and maximise funding opportunities, to help close viability gaps, to help us deliver more sustainable buildings and places is really crucial. But again, like you, like we said before, Chris, working in partnership with everyone in our supply chain, you know, to reduce carbon in the built environment is going to really reduce embodied carbon levels. It's going to need some massive change in the way we build buildings, the materials we use and the way buildings are built. And that requires us working with not just our main contractors, but getting far closer to our supply chain. You know, if you think about how sort of removed, I guess, a, a developer is from the manufacturer of some plasterboarding or some M&E kit or whatever, we've got to close that gap and work together with the products and the materials that are going into our buildings to reduce the carbon. So I think partnership, collaboration, absolutely crucial on many different levels to reducing greenhouse gas emissions, along with all the, with all the other sustainability aspirations that we've got. So if we look at the partnership and that side of it, and we talked a little bit about funding and, and your English Cities Fund and how you collaborate on things like that. If we then move on to some scheme specifics, obviously RPS and Muse know each other very well. We're working together on Eden, on the new Bailey developments in Salford. We've covered quite a lot of schemes off in the introduction, and they all come with very impressive environmental accolades. But when we come to Eden, where did the vision for this scheme come from? So Eden is a speculative office development we've got. It's the last office phase at New Bailey. We're just coming to the end of, which is part of our Salford Central development, which we're, it's an English cities fund project. We're delivering that with in partnership with Salford City Council. The commercial district at New Bailey has been massively successful and Eden actually sits, sat within the sort of the residential part of New Bailey. But given the success we'd had with the commercial schemes, we actually decided to progress with another office scheme on the Eden site. And at the same time, it sort of coincided with us putting a bit more structure around how we approach ESG and sustainability on our projects, which moved into what's now called our sustainable future, the framework we've got. And we used Eden as a sort of test project, really, for how that sustainability strategy came together. And so this was started designing Eden three years, two and a half, three years ago. So it's pre-COVID. Clearly, climate change was an issue, but I think it's fair to say that that's really ramped up over the last couple of years. But we could see that 
to deliver a speculative office building there. We had to do something really special. We wanted to do something really different and really push the boundaries with that building. And the vision was simple. It was to create the most sustainable, like holistically sustainable commercial building that we could. Obviously, we had to be able to afford to build it, had to be lettable. We had to be a place where people that obviously been sustainable, where people really want to work, but we wanted it to be the most sustainable office building that we could deliver. And we stuck to that vision throughout the whole process. So every single decision-making point on that scheme, we went back to that. Will this make the building more sustainable? Well, it's clearly maintaining the fact that we needed to be able to afford to build it and all that other stuff. So it sort of came, it came from us. It came from Muse and, and ECF. Absolutely the right thing to do. How we look at that building and how well it's performing and where it's in the market, it was absolutely the right vision for that scheme and we're, we're really proud of it. And in terms of the standards you've achieved on that building, do you want to just sort of highlight a few of those? So in terms of operational energy, the building's performing exceptionally well. It's neighbours, it's targeting a neighbours five and a half star rating, which I think is the only new build, or it was last time I looked on the register, it's the only new build registered at five and a half stars. I'm sure others will, hopefully others will catch up with that, I'm sure they will. So it's Brian outstanding, and Brian wasn't a massive focus for us, to be honest. We were, we were more looking at the operational energy and embodied carbon side of things, but we, we achieved Brian outstanding just because we did. Design to sort of passive house principles, so really, really good quality U values and air tightness ratings, which obviously helps the operational energy. We've got a good, we, I'll be honest, we didn't hit the embodied carbon targets that we set. But we're down at 630 kilograms of CO2 a square meter now on the embodied carbon, which is good. We did look to use some timber in the structure, but for various reasons, that just wasn't possible with a building of that height at that time. But we've worked really hard with the traditional materials. We've been much more efficient on the design and using recyclable steel and replacement elements into the concrete, for example. So we've managed to get a really good embodied carbon rating, which I'm really pleased with. But that's, that's the one area we need to keep, keep really pushing on. We've got 174% net gain in biodiversity on that scheme with Europe's largest living wall with 400,000 plants going onto the building. So, yeah, it's, we're really proud of it. It's, it's a fantastic scheme. There's some pretty phenomenal accomplishments on that building. You've talked about quite a number of sustainability targets and accreditations. What it also highlights there is just how many different standards and accreditations there actually are. Just be really keen to know a little bit more about how you achieved them, how you measured them, and how you did actually decide which to aim for. I mean, you did say there some of them you weren't necessarily aiming for, but you achieved them nonetheless. So in terms of design and energy, just be appreciative if you can expand a little bit more. Yeah, it was. If we go back to when we first started designing that scheme, there wasn't the same level of knowledge within the industry about. I don't think we'd heard of neighbors, for example. So it was a massive learning journey for us. I like to say, alongside the the targets that we were setting in our sustainability strategy. So we spent a lot of time with UK Green Building Council in particular to define the sort of targets that we should be looking at for our strategy, which informed what we would then target on on Eden. We were really keen that we covered sustainability holistically. So we didn't just focus on carbon. So we've got, we set targets around a biodiversity net gain. We set targets around air quality, around waste, around water usage, around health and wellbeing. A massive part of sustainability is making sure these places are are there for that people are going to feel good in and working in and living in. So we looked at the holistic sustainability angle. But I think it is fair to say that the biggest shift 
was around carbon and setting a operational energy rating and an embodied carbon rating alongside the UK Green Building Council tax. You know, that's the sort of framework that we used. And we looked at that and we felt that was that was right. I think, like I said, the embodied carbon tax is particularly challenging. And we continue to learn on that, to be honest. And I, and I think working with industry, we're really keen to set some better ways of measuring these aspects and tools to measure the different targets because it's a little bit, there's a lack of consistency at the moment in some of that across the industry, which doesn't really help. It doesn't help. It can sort of, it can allow greenwashing in some ways. So we're really keen to work and to help define some set standards and, and targets and ways of measuring and certification. We really like the neighbours, the neighbours route because that measures the operational energy that a building uses. So that is really, really simple. And obviously the better, the lower energy you use, the better rating you get. Great. And we really like passive house as well. So we're delivering some passive house homes in Salford at the moment, a fully affordable scheme that all the apartments are passive house or will be passive house certified. And again, the reason we like that is that it closes that design to performance gap. So you design it right, but the passive, you only get that passive house certification if it's been built right. And that's really important for us is it's not just about designing it right. It's about actually making sure that it's built properly and performs as it's supposed to. And that's why we really like Neighbours and Passive House. No, that's great. And I think also what you really came up there is, is very much a holistic approach to it all. But what I would say, you know, for people listening, they may say, well, that is fantastic. What you've achieved is really seriously impressive. But I suppose some of our listeners may be hearing that and saying, well, that is fantastic, but that's going to come at a real cost. The technology is going to come at a cost. So if somebody's listening today from a housing association, a health or an education organisation and saying, how feasible is this in the landscape of public funding? How do they achieve this? It's interesting. I think, OK, if we looked at the full sort of list of targets that we've set around operational energy and body carbon, air quality, all, all the full thing, it does come at a cost. I say... If you use Eden as an example, though, where we've performed brilliantly on our operational energy and we've got, we've done pretty well on embodied carbon. We need, we, everyone needs to do better on that, but, but we've done really well there. That building has probably cost us two to three percent more than a traditional office building. I think that surprises people actually. And it's because there is no crazy technology in there. There's no silver bullet where we've had to spend millions of pounds on a piece of kit or something that makes the building perform the way it is doing. It's done through having that clear vision. So that becomes a key part of every decision that's made on the project. And then a completely rigorous approach to design, you know, and it's, it just means every single aspect of the building needs to be analysed and refined. And to be honest, the built simply, the more simple we keep things, buildings need to become far more simple. We need to build with less. Less is less cost, is less carbon in, in many ways. And actually just creating much simpler, more efficient buildings goes, it goes a long way to achieving what, what we need to be doing, particularly around operational energy. So it's not, I think we need to move away from seeing building more sustainable buildings and places as a costly thing. There is some cost, you know, you look at the passive house scheme I mentioned there. There's a longer program on that scheme because the contractor's got to look more rigorously at the air testing they're doing before they can move on and up, up the building. So that's added some program, which obviously has some cost. And there is some kit, you know, that we didn't perhaps use five, 10 years ago, the air source heat pumps and, and things like that have a little bit of a cost to them. But I think the approach we are certainly taking is that build with less, build not, not boring buildings. We still build fantastic buildings, but make the structure, the systems that 
make them as efficient and simple as possible. Passive house principles around facade, it's absolutely crucial. Getting the facade right on a commercial building, 40% glass. Guess what? That costs less, less glazing. Put more columns into the floor plate. These simple design things and just like say, having that complete rigor around that and sticking to it, absolutely sticking to it. There's always a sort of easy solution where I think, oh, well, actually we'll just go back to what we did before. Well, don't do that. Carry on and keep, keep the vision you've got. That's the way. And having working with the right partners. Yeah. That also get that and embrace it and can, and will be supportive and clearly the consultants we work with having that level of understanding and knowledge to be able to do that is clearly crucial. Embodied carbon is, is different. That is a, like I say, we can get to a point, but to really step that on, there's got to be a change in, in materials, which may come at a cost. It, it's more about things changing and innovation within the construction industry, to be honest, to move that on. So that is a real challenge. And I think if you look to build a truly net zero carbon commercial building or residential building, hitting the embodied carbon targets without offsetting are they are clear there's always going to be a little bit of offsetting but by minimizing the offsetting that is a challenge but just throwing money at stuff isn't probably the answer to deal with that it's very clear when you talk you can hear just how meticulous you've been about all of this and i think that two percent figure that you quoted on eden i think will come as a real surprise to people so it shows just you know the investment level that you've made doesn't necessarily follow that inflates construction costs significantly so i think that's a really important point to make i think for ourselves we found retention strategy proves effective when approaching the retrofit of heritage assets we follow this approach in our work on the grade two listed housing estate and architectural icon at Beaton House at Parkhill in Sheffield. And what we found is fundamentally involves challenging the design and construction teams to retain the existing material wherever possible. And so by doing that, it's crucial to preserve the historic fabric of the building, but also achieves carbon reduction in the build process. So how are you doing that? How do you approach the reuse of existing buildings as a business? I think we've had some really successful retention schemes where we've we've kept existing buildings that have really added to the character of of our developments. I'm sat in Riverside House today, and this is a scheme that we built through the English Cities Fund Partnership with Salford. And we retained the facade on that building, which was probably more difficult than it would have been just to have knocked that down and, and rebuilt from scratch. But we've got a much better building as a result that adds to the character of the place as much as anything else. And so absolutely the right decision there. We, as a business, now if we're looking at a scheme that has existing buildings and the option is to either look at refurb or, or demolition and new build, our plan A is always to explore reuse and refurbishment. It isn't always as simple as thinking, right, well, actually you retain a building and that's then going to reduce the embodied carbon. You do have to look at every building on a case by case basis. And I think just making sure that it's not automatically ruled out. So, okay, you might have a building that just doesn't look right, doesn't fit. And you, and they're sort of, I guess, 10 years ago, automatically it would have been right. Well, that gets knocked down and, and we rebuild something new that we cannot have that mindset. We have to explore the reuse of that building, but you need to do a proper assessment of it in terms of, well, okay, we can reuse it. Does that create a better? sustainable, energy efficient building with less carbon and less embodied carbon, very possibly. You have to go through the process for me on a building by building basis. You can't just have a blanket sort of approach that right, we're always going to reuse every existing building that we've got because that might not be the best answer. You might end up compromising on the ultimate operational energy or might cost you more embodied carbon to do so. 
So I think you have to review it on a case-by-case basis, but making sure you do and not automatically go into, well, we're going to demolish and rebuild. I think what the other bit for me on this is where you do then get, if you do get to the point where you think actually we can create a better building here with less carbon by demolishing and rebuilding, look at what you do with that existing building. I think historically in in demolition, it's sort of you give a contract to a demolition contractor and they knock it down and the materials go somewhere and we're perhaps not completely clear about what happens. Let's look at what every single material in that bit, where it goes, how it can be reused. I think that's the sort of next step then for me in terms of rigour around when we're demolishing buildings, let's recycle as much as we can, maybe in the new scheme. That's quite an interesting angle that we're also exploring where we do have to demolish buildings. Yeah, it's very much about cradle to grave, isn't it, really, in terms of that building, you're looking at every single aspect of it, not just how you build it, but when it's demolished, you know, what happens to the materials. I think coming back to the case by case basis that you talk about, how important is to you that the buildings and spaces that you're creating are reflective of the communities they sit in? Absolutely critical. It's like, that's what we create new places, but these are places that benefit the communities that we're working with. So if you look at Salford Crescent, that's a development for the people of Salford and it's absolutely critical for us and so we the engagement we do before we even put pen to paper with local communities is absolutely crucial to understand what the local needs are and local requirements which will be different on different schemes some areas we work may not have a need for affordable housing whereas most of the others will that will be a massive requirement so you've got to look at each place and each community where we're working and understand what is needed and then right at the beginning so yeah, it's, it's absolutely critical. And I'd say, you know, the spaces is the bit that's really buildings, but the places in between the buildings and the infrastructure, that's the fundamental to get right that really creates a place and benefits communities. And then the buildings sort of fit in around that. Okay. So can you elaborate a little bit more? So, you know, when you talk about that community and being reflective of the community, what sort of steps do you put in place? So I think for me that, again, it's around that early engagement, understanding local needs. I mean, we talk about social value and clearly social value, massively important. I don't really like the term. It's a bit, almost feels like you're sort of monetizing social value. And we do measure it. We sort of have to measure it to make sure you're getting better and you're improving. But for us, it's all, it's about, at the end of every project, we want to look back and think, what are the real outcomes that we've created? What are the stories? How have we improved people's lives? That's always our sort of vision is that we improve people's lives, we improve those communities. And yeah, okay, we measure stuff through a social value tool and that gives us some outputs, but it's about the outcomes, it's about the stories. And that when you look at a master plan then, it comes back to what those local needs are, but creating master plans that have a focus on sustainable transport, access to green space, you know, all this is, we've heard many times, but different, of mixed use, that's what creating different, not creating places that have a mixture of uses, different tenures for housing, but again, the housing that's needed in that particular local area, much more sustainable buildings that people want to live and work in. And working with our local authority partners to understand skills shortages in the area and how we can help those people who live in those areas to the younger people. We might be working in a, in a development for 15, 20 years, and how can we impact the lives of the, those young people in that area so they have opportunities through what we do as a placemaker how can those people have op- maximised their opportunities that they've got through what we're creating? It's not easy, but it is what we do. Okay, so that's fascinating, Phil. If you sort of elaborate a little bit more, how would you break that down into targets, particular key areas? 
So if we sort of start then to look at buildings and how we approach that, we like I say, we've got our sustainability strategy, which we've now got a whole series of targets that we look to achieve. And, and it's really important that we've got that structure that gives us the sort of framework to make sure that we are performing on every single project and we can measure performance. And like I say, we've set those targets holistically across all different aspects of sustainability. But there are challenges that come with that, I think. Viability is a massive challenge at the moment. We've seen construction costs increase significantly in the last year, you know, unprecedented levels. And that's clearly making things hard, whatever, in terms of viability on projects. But I explained before how we can approach that. We see there's a massive demand in the market now, particularly on the commercial side. And we're seeing that through Eden for really good performing, high quality, energy efficient, low carbon commercial space. And therefore, you know, it's what our customers want and need. Whether we start to see tenants or purchases on the residential side pay more, I think particularly as energy costs go up and businesses set net zero carbon targets, I think that will come. We're at a slightly difficult time at that at the moment where we, there's not the sort of evidence, but surely that's going to come. I think if we've got buildings that are performing really well, it, for me, even if there's a viability gap and something doesn't quite work, the answer isn't to just strip out all the sustainability stuff and go back to building traditional buildings, because the answer is to find ways through that viability gap. And, and actually, by having better performing buildings, that does open opportunities for, for funding. And therefore, by sticking to your vision for what you've got, you can actually then create opportunities to close the gap and deliver the right sorts of buildings. There are issues around insurance, particularly around the use of timber, which is a that's one of the areas where we're really working hard. We're doing a lot of work with a number of groups to look at how we can promote the use of timber, understand the, the risks associated with the use of timber better, in particularly in medium high-rise buildings, and how we can work with the insurance market, particularly to understand those risks and how we can deal with some of the insurance challenges around the use of timber. That's going to be really critical, I think, to helping get to the embodied carbon targets that we've set. And then we just need to keep learning lessons on projects, not reinventing the wheel every time, sharing lessons with industry so that where someone's doing something great on another project, well, let's share that and share that amongst the responsible developers that are around and, and that'll help us all try and that'll help us all do better. I think that's a really important point. That's about everybody benefiting from not necessarily people's mistakes, but things that people have learned. So I think on in that vein, knowing what you know now, what advice would you give to other owners, operators, developers, local authorities with existing estates looking to embark on their own decarbonisation journey? I think first off, it is setting a really clear vision about what you want to achieve as an organisation. And I think that has to come right from the top of any organization, but there has to be a massive focus on getting that embedded in everyone's behaviors and everyone's culture. Because it is the easy thing is to just carry on doing what we've always done, right? It is more difficult and it's, it requires energy and it requires effort to change. And so everyone has to be on board with that. Everyone has to want to do it within that organization. And so I think having a vision and then getting that culture within the business, which we've absolutely got at Muse, it's sort of embedded in everybody's way of thinking, is crucial. To, that's like you have to get that before you can then sort of move move forward. I mean, if you then sort of look at what a project level, what's needed and advice there, touched on it before really, it's building simpler, more efficiently with less and not thinking about sustainability as this load of technology and expensive stuff that goes into buildings to make it work, but thinking of it as a 
just a really simple, efficient design building that, like I say, doesn't need to be. It needs to be blandy. They can be these can still be fantastic buildings that have real character, but you build with less, less carbon, it costs less. For me, that rigorous design approach, but going, always going back to that vision that's obviously then embedded in everyone's behaviours is so critical. I think that'll get you a long way. That gets you really, really far along the journey to then go that next step. That's where we need more innovation and we need to come together as an industry to look to really change the way we do things. You can get a good way down the line within your own organisation doing what I think I've just said. But, but to move on to the next step, we need to start innovating within the built environment. Yeah, and I think your point on behaviour and vision are absolutely critical to all of that. You also mentioned their innovation. So if I can move on to my next question, it ties in with that. I hope you don't mind. I'm going to quote you on this. But one of the things you're known for saying was that a lack of clear and well-informed advice can prevent innovation, particularly in respect to fully understanding the benefits of an apparently more expensive solution. Can you sort of explain what your key area is there? Yeah, I think... What I mean there is that if you could develop a building, say, as an example, which isn't performing that well, and you might decide to offset a lot of carbon, and then you could perhaps say in the marketing material or whatever that this building is net zero carbon or net zero in operation. And I think people are getting more better informed about that. So they're starting then to scratch under the surface and really understand what that means. But that still happens. And that then just creates this fog around what's performing well and what isn't, and it's not clear. And that I think that lack of clarity that sort of confuses things, and that confusion can then prevent that innovation because it's you're sort of fighting against, you're sometimes fighting against that. And actually, if there was this really sort of really clear, consistent way of defining electric carbon and operational energy and embodied carbon, and that everyone was using the same system and the same accreditation and the same way of measuring the same tools, then everyone's clear well, where everyone stands. And once you get to that point, you could then we can all start to then think, right, well, how do we do things differently? You can spend the energy then looking at innovation in my view. So I don't think it's not like it's not the only thing that's stopping innovation within our industry, but I don't it certainly doesn't help. I think getting that really clear baseline would be for us would be is really important. And then we know where each building, each development is standing and the market's got clarity on that. And the market can then invest in, in the right place rather than sort of perhaps being a little bit confused about how different developments are performing. So yeah, I think that's sort of where, where I was coming from that. I mean, there's a whole other host of things that I think cause a lack of innovation in our industry and the way buildings have been procured traditionally is a part of that, I think, and the, the approach to risk within the whole supply chain and not having that long-term, again, long-term view on what's coming forward perhaps and just looking at things on a project by project basis, sending in a scheme, having to manage the risk creates a lack of investment in innovation. We're also doing a lot of work around how we design buildings, putting some standardization to designs and also then how we procure to work with our supply chain to facilitate that investment in innovation. So there's a whole host of reasons why innovation struggles in our industry, particularly amongst the sort of amongst the lack of clarity around targets and carbon and offsetting and all that. So really you're advocating that there needs to be a proper framework of standards that provides governance and baseline, really? Uh, 100%. Yeah, absolutely. Without that, it's really difficult to understand where a project sits and how it's performing. 
And then I think it's been very clear from our discussion that Muse have got a very strong set of behaviours, very clear vision. You've talked about long term. How easy do you find that in terms of contractors, subcontractor supply chain, they're buying into your values and your targets? Because I imagine that's been a challenge as well. Yeah, I think we work with some great contractors and great subcontractors. And I think there's been a massive shift from everybody over the last few years. I think the contracting partners we're working with have really sort of started to get to grasp with it. And But again, it's, you know, when... <laughs> We get into a bit of detail when we're starting to put things like operational energy requirements into a building contract and embodied carbon requirements into a contract. When we did that on Eden, it was, I think, the first time that certainly that we'd done that. And so there's then a nervousness around it naturally because it's not been done before, but we've been through it and we've done it. And so the next time it'll become easier and we might be able to push those targets slightly harder. And so I think we, again, it's just working with our contractors and supply chain. It is a challenge because it's new stuff. And I, like I say, I think that's where we need to get much closer to our, not our contract, we're very close to our contractors and key subjects, but further down into the supply chain so that they understand what we're trying to do and help us do that. I think it's been a huge amount of learning over the last couple of years, and we need to continue to work with our supply chain to facilitate that further. And I suppose it comes back to where we started the conversation, really, which is about relationships, long-term relationships and partnering and partnering perhaps in many different ways. But it means that you're on a, a shared vision and a shared journey together. Yeah, absolutely critical. Like I say, we can get so far, but to really push on to that next level requires absolutely that partnership working with everybody in the industry, but particularly with our, our supply chain and those who build our buildings for us. And we have to continue to work with them in partnership to do better. Well, that's great. Well, listen, Phil, at the outset, I said we were going to be in for a very interesting discussion. And you're certainly not disappointed. Really fascinating, really impressive with what's going on with Muse and its partners as well. And just listening to some of the developments that you've delivered on and the achievements. Again, it's commendable and very, very impressive. So thank you very much for sharing that with us today. And we wish you every success in the future. Thank you, Chris. Built Sustainably, the Road to Net Zero podcast is brought to you by RPS. To find out more about RPS and how we can help your organization achieve its net zero targets, visit rpsgroup.com. And then make sure to search for Building Sustainably, the Road to Net Zero in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at RPS, thanks for listening.